Hello and welcome to Crazy Making. I'm Simon Adam, host of Crazy Making. Today's episode marks the first of a series on child and youth mental health. I speak with Julie Wood about the psychiatric drug complex, big pharma research and politics, and the impact of psychiatrization on children and youth. Julie Wood spent most of her working career as a chartered accountant. After her son died in 2008 as a consequence of taking prescribed psychiatric drugs, she embarked on a journey to discover how this could have happened. She met with and learned from several high-profile critics of the status quo, and through them became involved in raising awareness of the truth about these medications and the harm that they do. She is currently editor of ssristories.org and an editor with David Healy and Joanna Lenuri of a recent book titled Children of the Cure, available from Samizdat Health Writers Cooperative. I know that our listeners can probably connect the dots here, but could you tell us in some detail what it was that brought you into mental health activism? Well, it was a long journey because when you lose a child, as any parent can imagine, you spend the first months totally paralyzed and and in shock. And what happened to me was that I felt that I was being, I had a narrative pushed on me that didn't sit well and that I just couldn't accept. It just did not jive with what I knew about my son. And so my husband and I got hold of the medical records relating to our son and started to read and started to question and started to think about what might really be going on because I didn't trust, frankly, what I was being told. And that's what led me to two really important people. One is David Healy, who we still work with. Um, He has been a high profile critic of some of the medication types that my son was given, and he's spoken very frankly about the harms of those medications to some people. The other person I met, and this is where the activism comes in, was Dr. Bonnie Burstow. And I learned about her from an article in the newspaper. There had been a conference, I believe in 2010, called Psych Out, and the National Post had run an article that was quite critical and said things like, it was a bunch of crackpots, as I recall. Um, And yet when I read the article, I thought, well, these people seem to have an interesting perspective. So I decided to try and get hold of them and I did. And I've sort of been a member of that organization ever since. I see. Okay. You know, it's, it's, this is a good exercise for me to refresh my memory into the timing that brought you into that uh, movement, the activist movement. So it was Psych Out and it was 2010. And I remember I was one of the organizing committee members of that conference. Yeah, it was really quite, uh, quite, quite an experience and a huge impact. And I don't know if you realize thereafter they, they did a New York uh, carried out Psych Out too a couple of years afterwards. So um, 
So, you know, Julie, um, could you tell us a little bit to the degree that you want to share about, um, tell us about John, John David, your son, John David, the impersonator, the magician, the actor, the playwright. Well, he was a big personality from the time he was little. And my husband is a real introvert. I'm sort of an ordinary person. My other son is an introvert. We weren't sure where he came from, but he was, he loved life. He loved performing. He just wanted to be the center of attention and yet he respected other people. So he just really thought that the best thing you could do in life was be out there. And it caused him trouble in school, but in his teenage years, he was so fortunate that he had some teachers who were just terrific. Their view was you wanna argue, onto the debating team. You wanna perform, you go and do theater. So he did. And he did theater professionally. He was a, a really fun kid, um, but he had his issues, I, I'll say that. He was gay and I, I, this breaks my heart every time I think about it because I sort of suspected, and it was fine with me, but he, he had ambiguous feelings, I think, for all kinds of reasons, but he came out in a suicide note. So um, that was my son. But along the way, he had, you know, experience with these doctors who prescribed him things he should never have had. And it just, they did not do well for him. Thank you for sharing that, Julie. I'm, you know, um, and I'm sorry that that was your experience with your son, but I'm not sorry that it led you to this um, forceful and powerful life of activism that it has and will continue to undoubtedly change people's lives for the better. Um, you, you, you mentioned that you um, had access to his medical records. And if you, if you are able to, to whatever degree, what did you find? Can you tell us um, if, you, if you're able to talk about it? Anything, did you find anything concerning or what did you find in his medical records? Well, dear Simon, you did say this is going to be 20 minutes. I could keep you on this one all day. So I will summarize it for you. Okay. Because medical records are very difficult to read. But that was where I think the biggest impetus for the activism came from because I was so angry. When I read the records, I realized for the first time that the medical establishment has no respect for people they've diagnosed. They couldn't care less about the truth. And I've actually written about this, um, but among the things they did, they would, my son would say things like, well, you know, because he had a psychotic break and because he had lost his fourth year at Trinity, he'd lost his breakthrough opportunity to direct Othello at Hart House. He'd had some massive losses and the university wouldn't have him back once he'd been diagnosed. They sent condolences, but they didn't want him back on campus. So 
um, even though his psychiatric problems in real life only lasted four days because it had to do with drug withdrawal. What I found was that once you've been diagnosed, you're not a person anymore. So he would say to people at the hospital, you know, yeah, I'm depressed, but I have good reason to be. Look at all that I've lost. And then they would write things about him that he was um, tended to be too concerned with himself at the expense of other people, just nonsense, absolute garbage, and totally insensitive, totally baseless. I, I was appalled. And it all came from standardized questionnaires. This wasn't just a couple of outlier people. Then outside of the formal processes that the hospitals use, they also have a way of dis discounting you. So I would give them detailed notes and records and they just couldn't have cared less. They invented a brother for me who had, um, they said, oh, I have two brothers. One has schizophrenia and one has something else. Now I had a brother with some drug problems, but they just invented this other brother and wrote about it in the file as a reason why my son has these problems. It's, it was tr truly surreal. The, and there is an assumption that no one will ever see these documents. You can tell that. And Julie, how did you obtain them? We, there is a process um, by which if a family member dies, during their life, you can't see these records because of privacy of information, unless the person themselves wants to try and get access and share them, but that was never an issue. But after somebody has died, you can ap apply for them through a process, which is what we did. And that's how we got them. I see. Okay. Um, is that what is also known as the fr um, a freedom of information request? I think it's probably under the Health Information Act. But you know, I can't remember the detail. I'd have to go back and look, Simon. At the time, we figured it out and we asked people and figured out how to do it. But I don't frankly recall the details. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, just for my own curiosity. Um, right. You know, um, so Julie, I know that you're a pretty forceful activist who critiques big pharma and, and the over... Um, pharmaceuticalization of, of <laughs> mental health, right? I mean, that's, here's a new word. We just invented it. <laughs> what is your biggest beef, your biggest bone to pick with big pharma in the context of psychiatric drugs? I think that I go even bigger than pharma, but here's what it is. You might agree or not agree, Simon, that in the modern age, where in the time was we're living now, that we live very much in a marketing world. And a lot of our values and our thoughts, our judgments and perceptions are shaped by marketing rather than the same forces that maybe shaped those same things 50 or 100 years ago. Pharma has taken advantage of that and they use it for things like 
drugs that are not approved for uses in children. They've never been approved. And pharma themselves will, in their monographs, in their drug guides, put in writing that these things are not approved. And they'll put things that you and I would agree with about the side effects and the, and the disadvantages. However, on the side, they push off-label uses of, of medications for things that I consider to be just made up shit, <laughs> frankly, like OCD and bipo childhood bipolar and anxiety, um, AKA worry. Um, that I think is the thing that I think is the most dangerous and damaging so that doctors have bought into the idea that these things are valuable for things like these so-called disorders, worry is a disorder, um, and they give small children, babies even, drugs that have never been shown to be safe for kids and have shown, frankly, to be unsafe for kids and do a ton of damage to their little growing brains. So you say we, we live in a marketing world, um, that big pharma has taken advantage of this marketing world and is uh, pushing aggressively for uh, off-label use of, of drugs uh, in the context of psychiatric drugs. And so, yes, I agree with all of that. We are on the same page, you and I, Julie. I, I just want to, you know, for the listeners who are not familiar with, with what off-label means, can you explain that? To the best of my knowledge, it's this. Doctors are not bound by recommendations of the regulators in the US, the Federal um, Food and Drug Administration that regulates drug safety. The same role is performed supposedly by Health Canada in Canada. So if these drugs have never sh been shown to be safe, that doesn't mean that doctors can't prescribe them and the recommendations related to cautions, for example, antidepressants causing suicidality, doctors are free to ignore. So if they listen to somebody who says, oh, you know, mirtazapine is just really useful for managing autism. There may be not a shred of evidence in the world to support that, but if a doctor believes it, they can prescribe this drug anyway. Right, so it is really the use of a drug um, uh, that's been approved for something else, but it's being used for something that was not originally intended uh, to be used, and it wasn't originally approved for this new use of it. That's exactly right. But in addition, it's approved, it's not approved for a particular population because in some cases it's been shown proven to be harmful to that population and yet off-label provides this loophole, this backdoor way of increasing prescriptions. And I just read a study yesterday actually um, that showed that in Canada up to 2016, antidepressant prescriptions are increasing exponentially. Why? Wow. I think that's the answer. 
Yeah. You, you know, um, I want to ask you about Children of the Cure. How did that okay. come about? What, what, is, what is Children of the Cure about? How did it come about? Tell us a little bit about that book. Well, that's really a Dr. David Healy project, but I've always, I've been, I believed in it, I believe in it 100%. It started with a group of high profile doctors wanting to do um, a reanalysis of the data relating to a very, very well-known study and probably the biggest, I'll call it a fraud, um, that was ever put out. And this study purported to show that paroxetine under its various names was safe and effective as a treatment for um, adolescents and young people when in fact the data that they published to the extent that they published it showed the opposite and there was a lot of machinations underneath it and a lot of hidden information. So Children of the Cure took the whole story of study 329, how it started and how one very brave Scottish journalist, Shelley Joff, who is just a filmmaker, well, not just a filmmaker, but she, she was doing these series of films for Panorama and was able as just one person to uncover more problems about this medication than all the reviewers in British Medical Journal, all the people who read the study, 329, all the authors who are supposedly experts in the field. And, and that's the story. How is it that this obviously seriously flawed study that caused so much harm to so many kids because it was so relied on for so long. How could it be that this could happen in a continent that supposedly cares about its citizens and protecting their safety with respect to drug approvals? Very interesting and compelling question. Um, I look forward to finishing it. I haven't finished reading it. I must admit, because as I said <laughs> off record, I thought I wasn't doing this interview with you for another couple of days. So I thought I had more time. So, but here we are um, in real time. Uh, Julie, you know, okay. So you're obviously up to a lot these days. You know, when you're not tackling big pharma or writing books and trying to help save young people's lives, uh, what else are you up to? Like, what are you up to right now? What's the newest and latest that you've been doing? Well, I play bridge a lot, but one of the things that I found the most interesting, and this does relate to cure and to a lot of other things, and it's one of the benefits of having been exposed to Dr. Healy is that if you know the history of things, so much gets revealed. I believe, Simon, that a lot of what makes it easy for pharma, for the marketers to get away with pushing a lot of notions that, we've buy, that we're buying into is because we don't understand the history. 
just to give you one quickie example, because so many children are drugged for um, ADHD, but ADHD never existed 50 years ago. And there was a thing called MBD that for that maybe affected some tiny fraction of a percentage of the population. But the idea of hyperactivity in children and, and um, that certain behaviors collectively constituted disease was voted into existence in the 90s. A bunch of psychiatrists put up their hands and yes said, yeah, we think this is, this is something that's real. And then everybody started drugging kids for it. Another interesting thing, and this is in Cure, um, the history of depression. In another book, The Antidepressant Era, David talks about how there wasn't really depression before the 1900s. There was economic depression, but melancholia wasn't something that we considered that one in five people would have in their lifetime and that losing your boyfriend or your grandmother meant you were depressed. This was something that pharma had to market for two decades really, really hard via doctors and journals to get people to buy into. Canadians and Americans were really resistant to the notion that there was something wrong with them if they didn't feel right for decades, as I say. So until the 80s, people tended to believe that if you were down, it was probably because there were bad things happening. And if you just hung in there and talked to your friends and looked after your kids and got on with life and that things would improve. And lo and behold, they did. But now we don't think like that anymore. We feel that if I feel crummy, I better get myself off to a doctor to get me a pill to get rid of it. So, <laughs> so history is a big is a big deal. And I, I think that there's so much history. Bonnie was another one. Bonnie Burstow um, from Moise was a big believer that if you understand the origins of things, you'll see them in a new light. Julie, if you were to find yourself sitting with young people or youth struggling with mental health issues, what would you tell them and what advice would you have for their parents? Okay. This is a really hard one. And I'd hope I was sitting with their parents too, because I feel strongly that we've shortchanged our young people because we've overprotected them in a certain way, even as we've destroyed the, their, their future economy. We've borrowed so much against it and we've wrecked their environment that they're gonna to have to live in the rest of their lives. Somewhere along the way, we lost the idea that young people are resilient, that they are able to withstand failure, able to learn how to cope with the vicissitudes of life, that life is tough. It isn't fair. There are bad times. There are good times. Crummy things will happen. 
but people who are grounded, have friends, believe in themselves, are the best equipped to go forward. And I would tell people if I had to just say one thing to them, believe in yourself, do not give up hope and think that you need to go to a doctor if things are going wrong. Think long and hard about how you want things to be and never stop fighting for, for that. And you'll probably find that your life turns out pretty well. Thank you. Thanks for that, Julie. Julie, Julie Wood is a chartered accountant, mental health activist, mother, and author. Julie, thank you for joining me on Crazy Making. Well, thank you, Simon. It's great to be here. I really, really like um, to talk about these things, and it's a pleasure to connect with you again. Subscribe and listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Reach out to us by email at crazymaking at yourq.ca. That's crazymaking at yorku.ca. And follow us on Instagram at crazymakingpodcast. This podcast is written and hosted by me, Simon Adam, and edited by Among Antariksh Sagar. Thanks for listening.